You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. I'm a little bit Listeners, uh, this is another Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, this week, I will be your host, David Grubbs. I'm a graduate assistant at the University of Georgia. Um, I'm not in my own office. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I do have my office back. Um, the the chuckling voice that you just heard is one of my regular partners in crime, Nathan Gilmore, an assistant professor at Emmanuel College. How are you, Nathan? Doing pretty well. It is raining like a booger down here. How about up over there in Athens? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's still still raining here, and all the undergraduate girls have their galoshes on. So it's you know, <laughs> yeah, like psychedelic color galoshes everywhere. Now, are they still wearing their tiny shorts? I remember that about UGA. That no matter no matter how rainy it was, no matter how cold it was, girls would still walk around in gym shorts. Well, they they still have the tiny shorts, but they're on top of tights, which is their only concession to the weather. Which is the dumbest possible look. Well, yeah. You could walk around wearing like a bear costume and it wouldn't look as dumb as uh, shorts over tights. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and listeners, uh, you know, just to fill you in if this is the first episode you've ever listened to, the curmudgeon that was just speaking about... Uh, stupid shorts and things expert That's on my, women's fashion is, is the way i like to think is of expert on women's fashion michael farmer who is an instructor of developmental writing at uh what tallahassee community college that's right uh, adjunct instructor adjunct instructor all Don't, right you, you gave me a uh you gave me a title raise there david <laughs> Well, sad, sadly, inadvertent title raises don't go along with inadvertent financial raises. Um, Will, have we got uh, any housekeeping to do before we dive into our topic? Any feedback or anything? I'm pleased to say we didn't get any feedback calling me a pinko or you a Nazi after our discussion of the Constitution last week, David. Yeah, I, I was actually pleased with that, too. I was, so. uh, I was cowering all week waiting for it, and we never got it. Right, although one of my uh, comp students here at Emmanuel College said that he listened to it, and he said that I was the left-leaner of the trio. Well, it's good to know that uh, they, they didn't think I was. On what grounds <laughs> did he call you left-leaning when you spent... You, you talked for, for several questions about the ways in which you're conservative. Is it just because you yeah, said you don't yeah. like big business? Probably. Well... If, uh, if not liking big business is enough to make you a left winger, uh, sign me up. Yeah, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be. That's true. Oh wait, never mind. Um, wow. Well, 
So, so uh, hooray, listeners! We we have a lack of feedback we expected. So, which apparently means that either our audience is much more understanding than we had uh, worried, or or else that we're way more moderate than we thought. So, you know, pick one. Um, anything on the blog that we want to point to? I saw some interesting links, one of which invoked my name. <laughs> Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of what the Grubzian moment was, but... It was defending classical apologetics, wasn't it? Oh, yes, yes, because I know that when we did the apologetics issue, David was our sole defender of the <laughs> classical mode of apologetics, so... Okay, okay. Um, and uh, also your link to Fred Sanders recommending that we read Nietzsche. Which... Yes. Yeah, I, I did not click through to that. I just kind of sat there for a while and stared at that sentence and <laughs> reinvented a new conception of the world in which that sentence is possible. Well, and honestly, <laughs> I mean, Fred Sanders' approach to it is really the healthiest response to Nietzsche uh, that, I mean, I can think of, namely to situate him in his own historical moment and to mm. read him accordingly. Nathan, I believe it is the healthiest one you can think of other than the elaborate one I did last year on the blog. <laughs> I, I think that's did, what did, you meant. Did you do a post on Nietzsche last year? My, the My Kind of Atheist <laughs> post that got me in such hot water uh, dealt pretty heavily oh, with Nietzsche. Oh, and see, I, I remember that as being about Heidegger and Sartre rather than Nietzsche. I dealt with Nietzsche, too, because Nietzsche on ethics, I think, is instructive for Christians to read. Okay, okay. My, my apologies, Michael. Oh, well. It's too late now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. You're out of the family. I, I, I've, been, I've been married long enough to know that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and no, Shit. Mary doesn't listen to the podcast. I was going to say. I, I was going to say. Well, neither neither does why you know my wife. To be fair, um, she, though she feels bad about it, uh, Michael, she 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 thinks that Victoria is a much better wife than her because Victoria apparently listens to us. Victoria only listens to episodes she thinks are going to be interesting, which are usually the ones that I don't host. Okay, okay, well, uh, all right. I'm she's still gonna... sore though because the episode she co-hosted is one of our lower-rated episodes, so she's convinced that the world hates her and. Uh... And is not interested in anything she has to say. But aren't we all? <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, yeah. Anyway, on that dark note, let's segue to something <laughs> completely different and hopefully more interesting, which is today's topic. Um, you know, I, I alluded to it at the end of last week's episode and uh, have actually had more conversations with my wife since then. Um, the perennial question... Uh, actually more perennial than than I had realized up until uh, a few years ago, which is uh, which is which is a better place to be to uh, the city or the country. Um, in my own life, this has uh, come out lately in conversations with my wife, usually over you know jobs that we've looked at and colleges that we've thought, hey, it'd be nice to live there, and then looking at the area and saying that's out in the middle of nowhere or that's in the middle of a gigantic concrete jungle. Um, anyway, that's kind of the way it's relevant now, but. And Christian uh, colleges tend to be either one or the other too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So in light of that conversation, it seemed like a good idea to dig into that whole town and country uh, dichotomy, which apparently has been with us as long as there have been towns. Um, 
but before we do that, um, I would like you, Michael, to uh, tell our sto- our listeners uh, the story that I learned the dichotomy from, uh, namely Aesop's fable, uh, The Town Mouse and the Country Mouse. I'm happy to. I, I am I'm just going to read it because it's a fairly short story. This is from the Laura Gibbs translation. A city mouse once happened to pay a visit to the house of a country mouse where he was served a humble meal of acorns. The city mouse finished his business in the country, and by means of insistent invitations, he persuaded the country mouse to come pay him a visit. The city mouse then brought the country mouse into a room that was overflowing with food. As they were feasting on various delicacies, a butler opened the door. The city mouse quickly concealed himself in a familiar mouse hole, but the poor country mouse was not acquainted with the house and frantically scurried about the floorboards, frightened out of his wits. When the butler had taken what he needed, he closed the door behind him. The city mouse then urged the country mouse to sit back down to dinner. The country mouse refused and said, How could I possibly do that? Oh, how scared I am! Do you think that man is going to come back? This was all that the terrified mouse was able to say. The city mouse insisted, My dear fellow, you could never find such delicious food as this anywhere else in the world. Acorns are enough for me, the country mouse maintained, so long as I am secure in my freedom. And in a moral... It is better to live in self-sufficient poverty than to be tormented by the worries of wealth. So, um, I, it, my book also points out that this story appears in Horace's satires. I haven't read that. If either of you oh. have, you, you can <laughs> add to that in just a moment. Uh, I, wanna, I wanted to say that the version I grew up with, I, I remember I watched a cartoon version pretty frequently. The version I grew up in made the country mouse sound like kind of a rube. Um, <laughs> the, the version in this book... The, the, the actual Aesop version really makes the country mouse's fears valid. There, there's, much, there's much less uh, redneckery in this version. The country mouse seems like the sensible <laughs> one. <laughs> well, and, and the moral of the story paints the country mouse as the sensible one, really. That's right. The, the, the city mouse is portrayed as a kind of insane for being willing to live where he lives. Yeah. Vaguely Persian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how does that fit, though, with, um, you know... Greek no other other notions in in Greek literature and and other things about what life is like in a polis in a city. Well, um, it's worth noting that most Athenians, and I assume this holds true for most of the Greek city states, but I'm just going to talk about Athens. Most Athenians lived outside of the city, just outside the city. Most Athenians, believe it or not, were farmers. But the polis, as you describe it, contains those outside areas. So there's the the city and the polis are kind of two different things. Um, in addition to the polis, there's also there were also really legitimately rural areas. They had small towns. People had country houses out in the middle of nowhere, things like that. Uh, the the city was really the center of civilizations. Uh, civilization, and in fact, um, the the ancient authors don't really seem to have said very much about country life, and so that's why we don't know as much about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the agora, of course, was kind of the spiritual center of the city. You shopped there, you worshipped there, you socialized there. As for literature, um, one of Plato's dialogues, the Phaedrus, which everybody reads in uh, grad school for English because it's the one where he comes out against writing, um, that that takes place on the outskirts of town. It doesn't take place in a rural area, but it also doesn't take place in an urban area. You get kind of a blend of the natural and man-made. Phaedrus is out there taking a walk outside the the walls of the city in order to refresh himself. So from that, I think we can assume that that area, the immediate the the area immediately outside the city walls, was probably considered a, sp- a place of refuge. Um, 
I, f- I figure from all this, and I'm no expert on this, but I figure that the Greeks are not exactly down on the countryside, but they they, they probably prefer the city um, because of its, uh, you know, its status as the center of their society. Right, and for Aristotle, uh, you know, the idea of the polis rests not so much in the presence of lots of buildings built close together so much as human contact. And, you know, that's why, you know, if, if our listeners have heard the famous uh, statement from Aristotle from the Nicomachean Ethics that a man who lives without a polis is not a man, but he is either a beast or a god, uh, you know, as you read on in Nicomachean Ethics, you realize that the reason for this is that uh, those virtues that Aristotle talks about, such as courage and justice and self-control, uh, are really only intelligible in the context of human contact. Mm-hmm. And so if you imagine a world in which uh, there are basically islands where humans are, with mostly wilderness between... Right. Uh, yeah, that that that's makes sense. You want us to and imagine Vermont? Bit- <laughs> yes yes well what i was going to suggest uh, you know vermont does well enough but you know this is why in the ancient text you sometimes get uh the same place referred to as athens or attica you know athens is the city proper attica is the larger polis uh likewise sparta is the city and lacedaemon is the larger area you know the the agricultural realm of sparta so you know, if you see those names interchange, it's because of that reality that Michael just talked about where the city limits are not the edges of civilized life. Of course, if you lack a diamond, your wife won't be happy with her engagement ring. Oh. Nope. See, I was going to make a greater Spartan metropolitan area joke, but then, then, then Michael <laughs> took it there mine was a bazooka joe style joke i'll stand by it okay i'm gonna send it into archie magazine (laughs) yeah that's about that yeah that's that's about the level um (laughs) well uh, now of course we know that the the hebrew perspective on all things must contrast starkly with the greek so nathan uh and the hebrew perspective generally sounds just like 21st century post-structuralism Yes, it's odd oh. how that works out. Um, Me too, I'm telling you. <laughs> anyway, Nathan, just keep uh, laying the bait, don't you? Well, it's it's fun. Um, could you give us a sketch of uh, what Old Testament notions of city and, I guess, whatever approximates country might be? And well, sure. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, and then it, you know, while you're at it, how do those fit with other Near Eastern cultures? Because we're not going to assume that Hebrews are exactly like the people around them. No, not by any means. And I mean, one of the things that you really have to note in the Hebrew scriptures is are the narrative clues that you get. All right. Uh, There is not, as far as I know, any extended discourse on city and country as concepts, but we can infer certain things from certain narratives. So, for instance, uh, if you look at the narratives that take place in large cities, especially imperial capitals, uh, the big ones that are going to stand out are Solomon's Jerusalem and the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar and then the Persia of Xerxes in the book of es- Esther. Mm-hmm. And what you see in all three of those is just rampant corruption, 
uh, you get this strange codependent relationship both in Esther and in the later chapters of Daniel uh, where really there is a sort of bureaucracy of lower nobility or lower, or lower managers in the case of Persia uh, that are really calling the shots while the king becomes a sort of idiot puppet of them. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, with Solomon, what's notable in the later chapters, uh, well, the later Solomon chapters of First Kings, I'll put it that way, is that the text of First Kings starts using the same vocabulary for Solomon's domestic policies as the book of Exodus uses for the way that Pharaoh treats the Hebrews. Uh, so, I mean, the narrative clues here are that even someone like Solomon, you know, who is given divine wisdom to govern, eventually becomes just like Pharaoh, given urban power. Now, on the other hand, there's not an idealization of the country either. And in fact, you know, that word country isn't really a central concept for the Hebrew Bible so much as is the word wilderness. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about the wilderness is that it is often the content of curses that God sends upon cities. You know, when uh, God lays curses on Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, one of the things that almost always comes out in those books of the prophets is that uh, when my judgment has come upon you, your city will be as a wilderness. Uh, and, you know, the wilderness in the imagination of the Hebrew scripture is a place of wild animals, of demonic forces, of all sorts of inhuman things that make human life impossible. Mm. So where does that leave us? The answer is a sort of third place, uh, and it is the ideal of human existence in the Hebrew Bible, and it is the garden. And if you mm. think about the concept of a garden, it is natural growth, uh, luxuriant natural growth even with human work governing it. And so, you know, in that Hebrew imagination, you know, there, there are dialectic poles of wilderness and corrupt city. Uh, and, you know, somewhere in the ideal mean is the garden. And most of, you know, Hebrew existence is going to be some sort of journeying from one to the other. You know, you think of the Exodus, it is a journey from the cities of Egypt through the wilderness, eventually landing in uh, a land of milk and honey, something resembling the garden. The now, garden state. Knew, yeah, yeah. <laughs> New, New Jersey. Who knew? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> now, if you look to other Near Eastern cultures, you know, I know mainly about Babylonian traditions. Uh, there's a much higher view of the city there. Uh, mm. You do have the early conflict uh, between Gilgamesh and... Ah, goodness. Enkidu? Enkidu, thank you. I, 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 my list of Gilgamesh names is running through my head, and I lost that one. You yeah. have that early conflict, and basically, Gilgamesh, although he doesn't have the raw animal power of Enkidu, who is sort of the figure for the rustic, uh, he ends up being much more clever than him, and actually ends up corrupting him by means of sexual temptation. And by the way, folks, you know, if anyone ever tells you that, you know, the Old Testament is a barbaric document, you know, from the ancient world, uh, read it next to Gilgamesh sometime and you'll appreciate just how civilized it is. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> so at any rate, David, you know, I mean, the the strong contrast, I think, is that at least in Babylonian context and largely in Persian context as well, you've got a much higher view of the imperial city as the center of human life, the center of culture, 
the center of cleverness, the center of power, uh, whereas the Hebrews tend to be suspicious of those things. And the prime evidence, and this, this is where I'll, I'll end my little speech here, David, because I realize I'm filibustering at this point. Uh, you know, the one thing to note about God as presented in the Hebrew Bible is that, you know, geographically speaking in Exodus, when Moses needs to go and have an encounter with God, uh, and this will be Exodus 3, the only geographical cue that we get is that Moses went out beyond the wilderness. So in other words, we're certainly not in an imperial city, but we're not even in that wilderness place. We are beyond even that. So, I mean, where God encounters humanity is beyond even the imagination of geography that the ancient Near East has of itself. Mm. What do you make of, you know, and, and I've encountered this before, um, read it in various places. What do you what do you make of people who read the Cain Abel fight as some kind of parable of conflict between herdsmen and and settled farmers? Oh, I could definitely see that. You know, I think that you know what you've got going with the Cain and Abel story is that, you know, Cain's descendants uh, you know, become the craftspeople of the city. Uh Abel obviously doesn't have any descendants because he did. <laughs> Uh, but you know, one of the things about, you know, the city in those early Genesis narratives is, you know, like later on in the Bible, uh, it becomes a place of corruption. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah are cities. They are not, you know, small towns. Uh, now, you know, that said, you know, you also have to account for the fact that in Exodus numbers and Deuteronomy, the number one goal is to get the heck out of the wilderness. (laughs) So... Mm -hmm. You know, again, those those dialectical poles are always pulling on each other in the Old Testament wilderness and corrupt city. Hmm. Michael, and incidentally, how did... and this this is one of my crackpot theories. Yeah. But, you know, uh, one of the things about the descendants of Cain is that they take on functions that in other cultures are usually assigned to gods. Uh, and you know, the Roman god of fire and forging is, of course, help me, guys, Vulcan. 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 And the descendant of Cain who invents metal smithing is two Vulcan. Huh. <laughs> dum dum dum. Maybe. Michael, how do we see these notions carrying over into the New Testament? Well, um again, like the Old Testament, there's not 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 a whole lot of direct statements, but it's worth noting that Christ seems to spend much of his time walking between cities. Mm-hmm. So he would be in both. And he has parables that are set both in the r- rural areas and in urban areas. So uh, he, he he seems to at least recognize both uh, places. And it's also worth noting that almost all of the early churches were in more or less major cities, but that's because that's where the people lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I don't know of anywhere in the in the New Testament where somebody takes a stand for one or the other, but we can look at the church fathers and maybe find a little bit more. Uh, Augustine has has his very famous book, The City of God, which he writes in response to the sacking of Rome in 410. And in that book, he talks about how earthly cities fall, but the heavenly city lasts forever. So he's not exactly repudiating um, the city, but he's saying the city is at its very best a uh, imperfect form of something that, that will last much longer and he, mm-hmm. he does say that 
kind of the politics of the city are not not important. What's important are spiritual matters. Now, I haven't read more than excerpts from City of God, so I don't especially know what his views on like the urban rural divide are. Do I? Can either of you help me out with that? I think probably the closest thing that we see to that, Michael, is uh, if we look at his his histories, uh, his history of of encountering various heresies and battling those. Um, for example, uh, Donatism, um, a heresy in North Africa, uh, was seems to, seems to have been primarily something that was happening um, in kind of in kind of the hinterlands, and it was a sort of a, a resistance of uh, the metropolitan bishops who were in the kind of the imperial power centers of North Africa, who were do, doing things in the church that the Donatists thought compromised uh, their ability to even say that they were the church. Uh, that's to say that they were the continuity um, that 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 pulls us back to Christ and the apostles. And so their administration of the sacraments, the Donatists said, uh, were no longer viable because because they themselves were from a corrupt line of bishops. And this was something that was. Uh, at least my impression of the history is something that was happening away from the centers of power, and eventually Augustine actually uh, actually argued that the imperial uh, uh, the 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 imperial throne could use military power to bring these uh, these sort of rural dissidents back into line. So you know, while on one hand in City of God he seems to be let's not be too invested in the city. Um, I I don't know that in 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 his life there's there's there does seem to be this uh, let's keep the frontier people in line kind of mentality, like I a mean, theological whiskey rebellion. I, maybe. <laughs> Any thoughts on that, Nathan? Well, yeah. I mean, another thing that Augustine seems to have a lot more confidence in than some other theologians have had is the authority of cities to enforce those sorts of things so you're absolutely right i mean you know when the donatists uh do have their rebellion really against the urban bishop saying you know those who apostatized during the great persecution are no longer real bishops and therefore their baptisms aren't valid you know augustine was perfectly happy to say you know the kings of these cities uh and he didn't use the term kings but you know the rulers of these cities uh, are within their rights, and in fact, they're divinely mandated to use non-lethal force to go rein in these heresies. So, I mean, you know, one of the passages that I remember debating back in seminary was the part in the City of God where, you know, he says that it's perfectly valid to go beat the Donatists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, you know, this idea that, you know, the cities are somehow, have this sort of paternal relationship to the country you know, it's definitely, you know, part of that dynamic that, you know, my seminary, which was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, uh, tended to resist. Yeah. Um, well, I guess if we move on from Augustine and uh, go into the Middle Ages, which, you know, Augustine is the giant who sort of looms over the Middle Ages and uh, which which basically stays in his shadow. <laughs> um, we see that that continuing 
emphasis on the church being in their urban centers and the people out in the frontiers are people who need to be kept in line. Um, and we see it actually linguistically. Um, the word pagan, uh, if you look at, if you, you know, hunt down the etymology, it, it actually means a rustic, a, a, a person out in the countryside. Um, so there was this idea that the people out in the country are the ones who are preserving the beliefs that need to be uh, uh, brought into line with with Christian orthodoxy, which was was which was associated with uh, the metropolitan sees, the urban centers of ecclesiastical power. Um, we see it also in the uh, the old English word for for a pagan, which is a heathen, a person who lives out in the heath or out in the uh, the kind of the wilderness area, and another uh, another word which uh, fell by the name of Martin of Braga, a uh, a writer in uh, well, I guess he he's sometimes called one of the Iberian fathers. He wrote in Spain, and I think the four hundreds. He wrote a book for Correctionis uh, Rusticorum for the for the correction of the rustics which was all about how to persuade the simple country folk out of their silly ideas. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, this, this was something that, that definitely carried on. Right. Um, a lot of medieval, a lot of medieval hagiographies too. I mean, all the way up until the ninth century really, you know, feature these preachers going out into the countryside and tearing down the shrines to the local gods. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in that medieval imagination, you know, the, the heath or the, you know, the wilderness, like you said, David, I mean, it's still a place where the old gods are holding sway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even um, e- even in a very kind of physical geographical way, uh, there's an old English poem called Guthlock about a, a hermit named Guthlock who sets out to conquer the wilderness in the name of God. And he does it by moving into... Um, uh, a cave that uh, seems to be set into some kind of a burial mound out in the middle of a swamp, which is very, in a, in a very kind of physical way in the poem, inhabited by demons who right. have been driven out into the hinterlands by the, the prevalence of Christianity in, in the more settled regions. And so Guthlock is in, in this very real way, kind of, you know, pioneer manifest destiny style. <laughs> pushing back the demonic hordes further and further into um, into the undeveloped spaces of, of the wilderness. Now, later in the Middle Ages, we see that uh, sort of spiritual dichotomy of urban centers and rustic and rustic centers uh, transferred to a more social kind of paradigm. Um, if we look at Chaucer's uh, uh, Canterbury Tales. There are several tales in which uh, the the country rubes get snookered by uh, various city types, usually university students um, or other kinds of urban con men, uh, you know, people pretending to be astrologers or alchemists or whatever, um, uh, pulling sort of ruses and, and, and other kinds of practical jokes on uh, on the folk of the countryside and uh, well often say often in order to uh, accomplish sexual conquests on the side um, you know so so that kind of 
uh, looking down on the country continues. Uh, I think the one different thing, though, is Piers Plowman, a long poem by William Langland, who is a contemporary of Chaucer, in which he holds up farmers as uh, a type of Christ and also a type of humanity at large. He goes back to, uh, Nathan, your, your image of a garden and says that the farmer is not the unformed wilderness. He's not um, the rube <laughs> uh, to be, to be uh, victimized by city intelligence, as in Chaucer, but is instead uh, harking back to that, that Edenic state. Um, so that Piers, Piers the plowman, the, the figure of the archetypal farmer in that poem, is the one who lines up all the kings and nobles and commons and tradesmen and merchants and tells them how they're supposed to run society. Uh, in a way that's uh, that's just and uh, merciful and fair and and just holy uh, before God as well. Um, Nathan, did you have anything that you want to say about the Renaissance? Well, sure. I mean, a, a few things to note about the Renaissance. First of all, because you've got this strong reappropriation of Roman genres, Roman themes. Uh, you also have the reappropriation of the Georgic and the pastoral as modes of poetry. So what you've got is these very educated, leisured city people writing these poems, idealizing the lives of shepherds and farmers. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's easy to mock from a distance, but again, it is a tradition that goes all the way back to Virgil. So, I mean, it's, it's an august tradition. Oh, wow, I just made a pun that I didn't realize. Anyway, uh, you know... Beyond that, you know, if I can jump sort of to the end of what I think of as the English Renaissance, you know, one of the most striking images in Paradise Lost is that when Satan leaves hell, uh, the narrator uh, compares it to what someone, what someone experiences when one leaves the stench of London and goes out into the country. Uh, so, you know, in you know, in, in possibly that, you know, most famous narrative poem of the English language, uh, you've got a definite anti-London at the very least, but I would say anti-urban uh, dynamic going on. Yeah. And that seems to continue on into the 19th century. Oh, and, well into the 19th century. Yeah. Well, and, you know, <laughs> the, you know with, with the romantics, um, you know, how, uh, how, does, how does that continuity look there, Nathan? Well, I mean, there's a couple things going on in the 19th century, and really the strong tension between city and country uh, heightens in some interesting ways. On the on the city side, uh, you've really got the continental philosophical tradition uh, culminating in Friedrich Hegel, uh, who holds that really the modern liberal state, which is becoming more and more a, an urbanized state, uh, really does become sort of the height of humanity and the height of freedom. Uh, they often point to the less civilized peoples of, you know, Russia and, and places like that where there are a lot of peasants working the land uh, as, you know, places where you really have a lack of freedom because they're being ruled by the people in the cities. You know, their sort of ideal is where everyone is a free person and what that means is being governed by the modern liberal city. Now, on the other side of that struggle, you've got the English Romantic movement, uh, which, continuing from Milton's 
lead really uh kind of hold up the country life and the rustic as somehow simpler as somehow more organic uh, as growing out of genuine human nature. One of the supreme examples, of course, is William Blake, uh, who holds up London in his brief poem, London, uh, <laughs> as a place of, of chartered streets and chartered souls. Uh, not only are the streets laid out in a grid, but it'll actually put your mind in a grid and it'll hold you prisoner. Uh, and he alone, the sort of you know country prophet, is the one who is speaking the truth to these people in that poem. And what's the uh, one part of London he likes? I don't remember. The echoing green, where the yes, where the, yes. the, the children run in the park. Thank you, thank you. Mm. Uh, and you know that really continues, you know, through Wordsworth's poetry, uh, and you know, on into you know, the later romantics, I mean, there is this strong sense that the life of the country laborer uh, is ultimately the life to be held up. Now, criticism of the romantic period, you know, goes back to that pastoral tradition and says this is just that same old pastoral tradition sung in a new key. Uh, these are educated, you know, affluent, privileged people uh, singing songs about how ideal it would be to be a worker out in the country. Which they uh, never think actually that, do. <laughs> it's it's like the university Marxist. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, but that said, uh, I do think that, you know, at least emotionally on my part, there is some kind of draw in those romantic poets, you know, Wordsworth especially. Uh, I think that he sees things that the the philosophical tradition of the day is missing about that life away from the city. I mean, David, would you add anything to that? I'd, I'm sure I'm missing some things because my, my romantics lore is a little bit spotty. Well, I mean, j just, just that the, uh, along with the city at that time, and another thing that Blake brings out is, is, is simply industrialization. Um, sure. Milton, Milton's London stank for a different reason than Blake's London stank. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so and 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 there there is a going along with this not just not just a a uh, a location thing of like are there lots of buildings where the, where you are or lots of trees, but also how labor was being done, and and so forth. Um, you know that's that's a big part of it. But uh, when when I think about the romantics, I do I do often think about Philip Sidney's Arcadia, where he's got a king who just decides he's going to. He's going to kind of leave off being king for a while and kick it with the shepherds, which in his mind basically means sitting around all day watching the shepherds dance and sing. It doesn't involve a lot of dipping of sheep or, you know, any any of the other various things that actual shepherds really do. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, now... I guess, I guess we got to shift across the ocean now. Michael. Uh, yes, sir. What about America? Oh, I have I mean, so much stuff to say. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the colonies started out as agricultural settlements, but we got urban areas over here pretty quick. Um, how did we think about these spaces? Well, that's and why that's why it's important to note that the Puritan self-conception involved this errand to the wilderness. And if you do any kind of research in the Puritans, you're going to see that phrase over and over again, errand to the wilderness. So that not only suggests that America is a land of uh, 
rurality, I guess is the word. It's, it's, it's a land of wilderness. It's also a land that we're going to fix by making it urban. So you are, right away you get this weird tension and dichotomy. So even though, even though the Puritans are so, um, so pious, and even though their early settlements are primarily agricultural, their whole enterprise is heavily built on commerce. And if you want more information on that, there's a book called uh, Making Haste from Babylon by Nick Bunker that will go into it and explain the whole thing to you. So the Puritans' mission, even though it's theological, is also heavily built on commerce. And where commerce goes, there goes also the city. So you get Jamestown, which isn't Puritan. It's founded in 1607. You get New York, which isn't Puritan, founded in 1624. And you get Boston, which is Puritan, founded in 1630. Now, as early as the 1650s, you're only 20 years into Boston's history, William Bradford treats it like a place of sin and decay. So he has a poem called Of Boston in New England, and it begins... O Boston, though thou now art grown to be a great and wealthy town, yet I have seen thee a void place. So that poem, he goes on to rhapsodize about the days before urbanization. Largely, these are purer days. They're more holy days. These are the days before we forgot the God of our ancestors. That's a common theme all the way through the 19th and 20th century. You get this continual westward expansion. Um, you get the pioneer figure, the cowboy figure. These are huge figures in American mythology. I think you can hear me talk about them in more detail if you go back to the um, superheroes episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, most famously, you get Huck Finn lighting out for the territory to avoid being civilized. The, the, um, this is this is an iconic image in the American mythos, and in in the novels of the time, the novels and the poems, you get big cities as these places of extreme corruption. And, and probably the best example to look for is uh, Theodore Dreiser's very long and uh, flawed, shall we say, novel Sister Carrie, where you get this sweet little girl Carrie from uh, Columbia City, Wisconsin, I think is the, the fake town she's from. And she moves to Chicago and she doesn't want to work in a factory because who would want to work in a factory in the late 19th century. She doesn't want to work in a factory, so she sponges off one man and then she leaves him for his more successful friend. And they move together to an even bigger city, New York, after he steals a bunch of money from uh, the place he works. And eventually she... Spoiler alert. Eventually Carrie leaves him... (laughs) kind of hungry and destitute, he dies in the Bowery, and she ends up being a famous actress. And, Which and is not a happy ending. It's a happy ending if you're Sister Carrie. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's not so great if you're Hurstwood. Um, so, I mean, that's a very archetypal image of of the city around that era. Now, at the same time, you get a poem like Carl Sandburg's Chicago, and, and that, that poem famously says, they tell me you are wicked. He's talking to the city, of course. They tell me you are wicked, and I believe them, for I have seen your painted women under the gas lamps luring the farm boys. And they tell me you are crooked, and I answer, yes, it's true that I've seen the gunmen kill and go free to kill again. goes on like that for a little ways. But then, a few lines later, Sandberg says, come and show me another city with lifted heads singing, so proud to be alive and coarse and strong and cunning. So at the same time, you've got this city as a place of corruption and, and decay and disease. You also get the city as a place of freedom and strength. Um, so that that pushback begins to happen, especially in the 20s. Urban areas begin to see these 
be seen as these big artistic hubs. Um, really, you're getting that even before Sandberg with Walt Whitman, who celebrates the city and the country. But you see it in a big way in the 20s. Um, around this time, you're starting to see an abandonment of small towns in literature as well as in real life. Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson, of course, the young protagonist of that short story cycle, ends up leaving Winesburg at the end so he can go be an artist. Um, there's also, you can also talk about the importance of urban areas, especially Harlem, of course, for the Harlem Renaissance and the other burgeoning African-American literature. You, you wouldn't, I, I don't know if we'd have African-American literature the way we have it now if Harlem didn't exist. And what's a more urban area than Harlem? Mm. Um, so urban areas are artist hubs, but at the same time, they're also slums. And I just wanted to talk about one more book until I throw it back to you, David. Uh, there's a book by Henry Roth called Call It Sleep. And you get this Jewish kid in the slums of New York City, the Jewish slums of New York City. And uh, it's a stream of consciousness book. So you get this idea that inner city life is just this nonstop noise, this nonstop buzz of consciousness. And at the end of that book, the kid steps on the third rail of the subway just to stop the noise from happening. He doesn't die, but it quiets it for a little while. So I think, I think if you look at all that together, what you see about America and American attitudes toward the city and the country is that there's no easy way to classify it. The city's a good thing and a bad thing. And, and people are drawn to it even as they hate it. And that's going to get even more complicated about 30 years after that when we hit the 50s. But um, I know we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, so I'm going to um, I'm gonna leave off for there. Did I leave anything important out? I think I hit everything. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, well, but you brought us up to the, the, to the cynical middle of the 20th century. So um, I, I, I guess uh, I'll toss it over to Nathan. Um, uh, if you wish to preach to us for a while about the, the, the wicked <laughs> city, um, what will you use as your text? Well, I mean, one of the most fascinating moments uh, that explores city and country uh, actually comes in a fantasy novel, and I'm almost hesitant to go there because it is david grubb's territory but i oh, that's I, all right i welcome visitors. I, I i sally forth undaunted at least uh, you're staying out of my chapters. land what now at least you're staying out of my land if you're going into his <laughs> <laughs> uh into the final chapters of the lord of the rings saga uh the final chapters of the return of the king of course when uh the four hobbits who have been off fighting sauron uh, return to the Shire only to find a gate barring the entrance to it uh, and men guarding that gate. And, you know, they soon discover that there's a mysterious figure called Sharky who has taken over the town. And what you notice, if you're paying attention, is that the features of this town uh, just sound very, very much like the encroachment of the urban into the rural. Uh, this is suburban sprawl, Hobbit style, uh, there are identical box-like houses. Uh, there is a regulated work schedule. Uh, there are social services that never existed before. There is bureaucracy. Uh, there's just, you know, this really sort of nightmare of modern suburban life happening in the home that they thought they were coming home to. Uh, and, you know, this is really the beginning of that heartbreaking end to The Return of the King when Frodo finally realizes that he can't come home. Uh, but in this, in this instance, and I, I want to stay on this episode, uh, what they eventually discover is that Sharky is none other than the evil wizard Saruman, uh, which, of course, you know, Tolkien being the old English punster, you know, Saruman is the 
wise one, the sophisticated one, mm-hmm. the slick one. Uh, and he has set up this, you know, sort of suburban wasteland because his attempt to industrialize the forest of Gondor uh, has failed. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, that's, that's largely what it amounts to. Uh, and, you know, eventually, you know, the, the hobbits win a significant battle against the men who are guarding it. Hobbits and men die. Uh, and, you know, Sharky or Saruman, you know, says, all right, you know, you can take your revenge on me now. Uh, they decline to, they simply exile him as he's walking by them. This is how slick this dude is. He actually draws a dagger and tries to stab Frodo. I believe David help me. Mm -hmm. I I believe it was Frodo, but he's got his chain on. Right, he's got his ma- his elven chainmail on, so it blocks it. Well, at that moment, his right hand man, Wormtongue, finally is sick of him, and stabs him on the spot. And as he's running away, a hobbit shoots him in the back with an arrow. So, I mean, in Tolkien's imagination, uh, you know, the encroachment of the city into the country uh, is a moment of treachery. It's a moment where the best things about the country are being ruined. Uh, and eventually it turns in on itself and destroys itself. Mm-hmm. And of course, like I said, I mean, you know, what's heartbreaking about the Lord of the Rings uh, and really what marks it off as very, very interesting literature against the criticisms of some people who accuse it of being simplistic morally uh, is that, you know, ultimately, although they have expelled Sharky and although they have, you know, staved off Sauron for the time being, Frodo himself comes to realize that now that he has been in contact with the evil of the ring as long as he has, he can no longer live in the Shire. He can never. He can no longer be in the country. Uh, mm-hmm. How are you going to keep him down on the farm after they've seen Perry, right? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, eventually, you know, he sails off for the Elven lands, and, I mean, it's it's about the most bittersweet going to heaven scene that I know of in literature. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I think it's one of the reasons why the Lord of the Rings is probably, uh, I, I, I think it's one of, one of, one of the, one of the best depictions of, of coming home from war. Um, yes. You know, yes. You know, Tolkien who, who had the experience of going through and coming home from one great war and his son who had to co- go through and come home from another, and uh, yeah, it's worth um, noting that Tolkien was really concerned about automobiles in because in, uh, because the way they ruined the English countryside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I'm sure a lot of it came from that. Yeah. Well, it just just the the industrialization in general, you know, he wasn't you know, he wasn't against chopping down trees at all, but he would rather uh, you not chop a tree down. Um, if, if, you know, unless it was like absolutely necessary, um, cause right. otherwise that tree might just pull itself up by the roots and smack you or <laughs> actually that was more wish fulfillment than anything else. Um, well, that's uh that's city folk critiqued. Um, Michael, let's turn to another person, another author at the middle of the, the mid 20th century. Um, would Flannery O'Connor say that country folk are any better? Let's uh, step away from O'Connor for just a second. Um, we'll come back to her, but first I want to talk sure. about what else is going on that she's reacting to. And I'm going to start with The Great Gatsby because I'm not sure you can really talk about 
the suburbs in America without talking about The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby is sometimes called an urban novel. It's not. Uh, the, the Great Gatsby takes place on Long Island. You're talking about the, the American dream getting transferred to the suburbs, um, which mm. is really what happened to the dream in general in the 20s. Um, really, you're, you're dealing with a place that's not too similar from where, uh, not too dissimilar, rather, from where the Phaedrus is set. You're right on the outskirts of the city, so it's kind of half urban and half rural. It's a suburban place. So both urban and suburban areas in that novel are places of extreme corruption, but at the same time, they're places of recreation. So, you know, Gats becomes Gatsby, and the suburbs become this place for the nouveau riche. Um, These are images of recreation. Um, 30 years later, by the time you get to the 50s, people are sick of it. There's no more recreation in the (laughs) suburbs, and the suburbs start to be seen as these... Places of kind of stultifying uh, banality, right? I live in a suburb now, and I'm not sure I would disagree. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And kind of the classic novel about getting away from all that is the Jack Kerouac novel, On the Road. Now, I'm not going to go too far into On the Road now. I will link in the show notes to an article, or a blog post, rather, that I wrote on On the Road last year, and it'll pretty much say what I want to say, which is On the Road is not as free-flying as you imagine it to be there's there's quite a bit of love for fixed location in that in that um book but that book is kind of the figurehead for a a theme that uh frederick carl calls spatiality it's this american hunger to move and i think that hunger to move is not invented by the suburbs but it's really exasperated by it uh, exas- exacerbated by it, rather. So, well. um, <laughs> it's exasperated too. So you get uh, John Updike's Rabbit Run. You get Rabbit running away from the suburb, really a small town, to go aimlessly south and e- uh, south and west. He's he's trying to he's trying to rediscover the uh, the frontier. This this frontier that we've lost because of the sprawl of the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Now, when we get to O'Connor, she's she's writing at the same time. Um, I think Good Man is Hard to Find, the story collection, comes out the same year as On the Road. If not, it's right around the same time. Um, she's really drawing from a Faulknerian tradition of the, the kind of vanishing rural area. So if you think of Faulkner's Sound and the Fury, one of the ways you know that the Compson family, with whom that book deals, is in decline, is that they've sold one of their pastures to make a golf course. Mm. So this is one of the great tragedies in Faulkner is the the land is becoming not land anymore. It's becoming, you know, suburbs, essentially. Um, So I want to look at O'Connor's story, View of the Woods, which is really about the crushing hand of progress. So you have a granddaughter in that story whose grandfather is going to build a gas station between the land he owns and the woods. And she doesn't want this because... She wants to be able to have a view of the woods, as the the title suggests. So she gets in a big fight with her grandfather. He kills her. He bashes her head up against a rock. And then, as he as he's watching a bulldozer raise his land to build this gas station, he has a heart attack and presumably dies. That's about as um that's about as straightforward and uh, anti urbanization as O'Connor is going to get. What you're going to find in the rest of her work is is as you suggest, David 
country folk aren't in, really any much better than city folks. Um, a good man <laughs> is hard to find, for example, where this whole fa- I, I really, you know, if I'm spoiling that story, you didn't graduate high school. But this this whole <laughs> this whole family gets slaughtered on a back road by a uh, escaped serial killer. There's no way that story could have taken place in the city. That that could only happen in the country. Um, the story Good Country People, which is probably even more famous, completely disposes of the myth of rural goodness. At the same time, for O'Connor, the city is still kind of a place of corruption. So if you look at Wise Blood, her her first novel, this uh, country boy goes to the city and the first thing he does is find a prostitute. Um or if you look at, and, and I'm, I'm kind of uh, nervous about saying this word, but I'm going to say it because it's the title of the story. If you look at her story, The Artificial Nigger, it's about this grandfather and his grandson who get horribly lost in the urban jungle of Atlanta. And uh, so, so the city's still a place of corruption, but if you look, the people in those stories were corrupted before they got there, too. Yeah. Uh, Hayes Motes and Wise Blood had already turned his back on on the faith before he went to the city. Um, Mister Head is already kind of the the jerk we know him as long before he gets to the city, and in fact the city uh, the city itself kind of saves him and his grandson. So uh, she she makes it a little more complicated. She takes what Faulkner was doing, sees what they're doing with the suburbs, and refuses to play by anybody's rules but her own. Everywhere is corrupting for O'Connor. Mm. There's 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 no garden. There's no garden in the city, and there's no garden in the uh, in the country either. Mm-hmm. I, well, one of my uh, one of my favorites is well, I mean, just just the good country people, um, when uh. The, the the city educated uh, daughter of the family who who thinks she's so cynical and so so smart for having left left the country and gone off to get a PhD and so smart so much smarter than everyone else and yet she's still snookered by uh, you know the Bible salesman con man you know just as much as anyone else manly pointer by the way I, yeah, I, I think everybody should should know that name manly pointer yeah i don't <laughs> think there's a more freudian name ever <laughs> um it's worth noting you know that that character not manly pointer but joy holga the character you're referring to is yes. o'connor o'connor went off to get a, a masters from uh university of iowa and then she lived in new york city for a while mm-hmm. so, so i mean joy holga is very clearly o'connor yeah right but I, I I do think that the mo- the most interesting thing, well, not the most interesting, but one of the most interesting things for me about that story is that the revelation is that even she, as cynical as she thought she was, still had an elevated view of the country people. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> she still thought she still thought that there was a kind of innocence in what she saw as their foolishness. Well, yeah, she thought they were stupid but honest. Yes. And right. what she learned is they may be stupid, but they ain't honest either. <laughs> <laughs> or, or rather that there's, you know, there, there's another kind of intelligence that's, that's, work, that's at work there. And part of that intelligence is being able to manage respectability. <laughs> so I guess that, uh, that about wraps it up. But uh, before that, we need to leave our listeners with something to take away. Um what do we deal with in our culture now that this discussion can help us deal with? Nathan? Well, one of the things that uh, 
really strikes me is that, you know, when we 21st century people think about country life, uh, it's almost always connected with the automobile culture. Uh, and honestly, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, I guess one of the paradoxes that, you know, strikes me about sort of modern stereotypes about country people and city people is that the stereotype of the country person now is almost always associated with combustion engines of some sort, you know, whether it's pickup trucks, chainsaws, you John know, Deere. Yeah. John Deere. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, you know, just to think that 150 years ago, the idea of the country person is an entirely different picture because the machinery is different. And of course, I'm being I'm being stereotypical Gilmore here. I'm obsessed with technological questions. I know. I know. Now, Nathan, <laughs> uh, in the 1850s, what did Kenny Chesney's girlfriend think was sexy? Was his ox? Because <laughs> I mean, that's a totally different meaning to that song. His wagon. <laughs> yeah, and see, guys, I I grew up around Indianapolis with a Bob and Tom show on in the morning, and they always did parody songs about the Amish so I've got about three of those going through my head right now <laughs> but at any rate you know I, I think that you know one of the things and I'll just go ahead and embrace my stereotypical Gilmore toss and say that you know <laughs> think about what the changes in technology do to that image of country life city life has always been sophistication and corruption but country life, you know, now that it is so closely connected with the combustion engine, even more so than city life is, right? So the technological tables have turned, so to speak. Uh, you know, when we think about it now, we got to remember that there is a long and a varied tradition uh, that perhaps we're not dealing with. Mm. Michael, what do you think? I think O'Connor is instructive here. I think whichever one you don't live in, you have a tendency to romanticize the other one. So I think a lot of people who live in rural areas tend to romanticize life in the city. People in the city tend to romanticize life in rural areas. People in the suburbs tend to uh, romanticize both. Yeah. I think it's uh, instructive to remember that you're, you, you're pretty much going to be corrupted anywhere. Uh, <laughs> and there's no there's no viable country mouse anymore. Uh, any, any more than there's a viable city mouse. There's a butler everywhere. <laughs> Good play. Yeah. Although I like the city better than the country, and I like the country better than the suburbs. So, you know, that's that's just me. I've lived in all three. Yeah. Well, uh, when I think about this, I, I I go the opposite direction from people in in the opposite you know, different regions. Uh, romanticizing the opposite. I think about, uh, well, you know, I know when I listen to urban friends talk about the country, uh, it's you, you are mere seconds away from an invocation of deliverance. Um, <laughs> and when I hear, you know, more, more rural friends talk about the city, they're mere seconds away from Godfather or, or other kinds of references. Um, I, to me, the, this this was helpful just to see how conventional those modes of thinking are, and uh, yeah, to <laughs> per, perhaps reconsider just just how useful they are. You know, when you go out into the country, don't think that you're going to find Mayberry. On the other hand, don't think that you're going to find you know a family who wears the skin of other people as masks, <laughs> like uh, Mayberry from uh, from the X Files. 
Yes. <laughs> um, which is basically just extending and the other, HP Love, an HP Lovecraft. Like neither a perpetual museum nor miles and miles and miles of drug wars. Right. Right. Unless your city is El Paso. <laughs> Well, yeah, okay. Well, some cliches have to rise out of somewhere. And the city boys have been, or country boys have been losing their innocence in the city ever since Enkidu. So, <laughs> all right. Well, what have we got going on for next week? Well, this is a 400 year anniversary year, as you guys know. And next week, we're going to spend our show talking about the King James Bible. Nathan, I was going to do that the week after. That's so funny. Oh, you're kidding me. I. Yeah. <laughs> We'll do it sooner rather than later, and I'll scramble to come up with something else. Well, I'm sure you can come up with a topic. You're good like that. All right. Well, King James Bible next week, listeners. Um, tune in for that. Um, in the meanwhile, have grand weeks, whether you are in cities or countries or in between. Um, and, uh, well, I'll leave you with Luther. Let your sin be strong, and let your faith be stronger. Da, 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 da. Well
everybody thinks we're wrong But a mother, who are they to judge us? Mother, mother, simply call me sweet where I hell on Mother, mother, ooh 